Hello and welcome to the first ever PlanetIRL.com podcast. This is Al Unser. Hi, this is Scott Dixon. This is Hugh the Sandman. This is Wade Cunningham. This is Pippa Man. This is Kurt Cavan of the Indianapolis Star. They make it. They have contact. Now returning. Yes, oh, they do. stuff each other. They take each other out of the race. Neither one would get. This is Emerson Stefano. Who's going to win it? Oh, Hardy's won it. Hardy's took it. Can you believe that? Hardy's took it at the finish line. Welcome to the IndyCar segment of the PlanetIRL.com podcast. We will be joined by Paul Dalby. Hi, my name is Captain Nevis, and you need more front wing. Hi, this is Tony Canan, and you need more front wing, and I love that. Joined today by our newest contributor to the PlanetIRL.com family, Stephanie from Toronto. Viking radio voice of the Eyes on IndyCar series in the Indianapolis 500. This is Ed Carpenter. Hi, this is Simona Zitovetra. This is Ari Leindike, and you need more front wing. This is James Hinchcliffe. Hello, and welcome to the More Front Wing podcast. Gosh, that sounds good to say. So, hi, I'm Steph here with Paul, and the same team as always was at Planet IRL, but now we come to you from More Front Wing. Hi, this is Alan Jr. Hi, this is Rick Mears. This is Ryan Briscoe. This is Bobby Ray Hall. I'm Woody Saxon. This is Kenny Bratt. Hi, this is Bobby Answer. Always better to have more front wings. This is Justin Wilson. This is Danny Sullivan. Hey, this is Robin Miller, and you need more front wing and a little more vodka probably too. Hi, everybody. It's Graham Ray Hall. Hi, this is Bob Jenkins. This is Dan Weldon. This is Mario Andretti, and you need more front wing. Well, that is quite something to listen to how far we have come across all these years. Hello and welcome to More Front Wings 100th podcast. Hooray! We got did it! (laughs) I am here. I'm Steph Wellcraft. I'm here with my co-editor, Paul Dalby, and also with contributor John Lingle. And we are very, very happy to join you for this very special podcast, which we have decided in honor of our 100th show to dedicate to the fans. You people out there who... uh, if it weren't for you listening to what we do, there would be no point in us doing it. And so we called out to you and asked you what your favorite moments were, what the, the things were that hooked you as IndyCar fans. And we got such a great variety of responses. We'll be here for a while going through them all, but it's going to be a great um, ride through through memory lane for, uh, for all fans of IndyCar, new and old. So let's jump right into it. Um, we were very fortunate, especially, to hear from uh, from some old friends of More Front Wing via audio message. We invited some uh, members of the media and fellow bloggers to get in touch with us by audio and share with us their favorite memories of uh, IndyCar over the years. The first one we're gonna we're gonna share with you is um, from James Black at 16thandgeorgetown.com. This is a rare example of audio from James Black, by the way. He doesn't do this for just anybody. So uh, James was was uh, very kind to share with us his first memory of uh, his first experience at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which uh, is a a common theme through many of the responses that we receive, which shouldn't come as a surprise, but his was a little unique. So let's uh, let's give a start to that and it'll give us a great launching point for the rest of the show. Let's, Let's give that a listen. 
Growing up in central Indiana and living just 15 minutes from the track, racing and open wheel racing uh, in particular is just kind of in your blood. I've always known about it, I've always heard about it, I've always been around it, I've watched it, especially the 500. But what really got me hooked was a junior high field trip my 8th grade year um, in May 2004. I remember sitting in the tower terrace right behind Brian Hurtis' pit and I vividly remember seeing him and hearing him pulling in and out of his pits and it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. The sound, the uh, just everything about it was just amazing for, for a 14 year old kid. And I remember sitting on the south end, looking down the, down the long front straightaway and seeing a group of kids behind uh, Sam Hornish Jr.'s uh, pit box up against the fence. And Sam was signing autographs through the fence. And of course I went down there and uh, got it on a little, on a little scrap of paper. And I just had a blast that day, especially for a field trip. Uh, I had never had a, an experience like that before. And of course, in 2005, I went back a few days. And then by 2006, uh, my sophomore year, I had my driver's license. And I would go every day after school. As soon as school was out, I would book out to the track, a little 15-minute drive out to the track and pull in about 3.30 or so and be out there for the last two, two hours, two and a half hours of on-track activity and then stay around as late as possible till they kicked you out. And, uh, and it was amazing. I, I, I've been back every day uh, since. I've missed maybe one or two on-track on uh, activity days since then. And um, it just got me hooked. Thank you again to James at 16thandgeorgetown.com for sharing his thoughts with us. And uh, Paul, John, I'm sure as well. And, and of course me. But uh, Paul, especially, I know IMS is very close to your heart. So uh, I'm sure it's going to be a joy for you to go through all these comments about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and uh, and uh, take a walk through all of these memories that our, that our listeners and uh, that IndyCar fans had to share with us. Uh, let's start with John Sherritt, who um, shared with us that he really enjoyed seeing the Speedway for the first time in 1952 when he was 11 years old. Uh, he said it was love at first sight, and that was the uh, the earliest memory, I think, that we received in this list. So thank you, John, for that. And Chris you have to forgive some of these names. I'm just not – I don't know if any of us are going to do very well, but um, I'm going to try Minotowski. He says that uh, – this is a, a recent memory. He says his daughter was interviewed by a local Indianapolis television station for their newscast while they were walking through the garage area at IMS. And I gather that that was this year that that happened. And he has pictures and video of the broadcast to keep us in memory. And he, uh, he thought that was an incredible surprise and uh, definitely something that his daughter will treasure later, uh, later in life as well. You know, our next one, Steph, comes from Mike Danks and uh... – you know, it's amazing as we read through these how, how many of these occur off track, things that happen away from the track. Here's one that actually happened on the track, and a lot of people remember this from just a handful of years ago. Mike writes, it was a cold and windy pole day. A.J. Foyt IV had been working hard to get up to speed, but had stalled out around 228 miles an hour. A.J. finally turned him loose. Big A.J. he's talking about. A.J. finally turned him loose to qualify, and I was sitting in the paddock grandstand on the top row, watching him scream down the front straight into turn one, and then he disappears into turn two. I'm peering over the back of the stands, watching him appear in the back straight, then suddenly he swaps ends. I turn to the monitor on the front straight and watch him going backwards at two 200 miles an hour, perfectly straight, slowing and stopping just before he reaches turn three. What a ride. 
And there's video of that out there somewhere. It, it really is a spectacular clip from a few years ago. <laughs> video from a lot of these memories out there, I'm sure, if you want to go and seek them out. Patrick Smith tells us that his favorite memory was this past month of May. He spends time drawing IndyCar liveries on his computer, and he's actually given us a, an example by email that we'll include in the post where we uh, where we post this podcast out for people to have a look. Uh, and he took some of them with him to IMS and had them signed by the drivers and the owners. Uh, he also had the chance to photobomb two of official IMS pictures, two, not one, two, and um, actually attended the 500 for the second but most memorable time in his life. He also says he almost fainted when Roger Penske walked in front of him, and we've all had that moment, Patrick. <laughs> um, John Luegi says that his most memorable moment was the first time he went to IMS for pole day in 2012, and ever since, all he thinks about is IndyCar and how amazing the sport is. Ken Christensen writes in, he talks about watching technical inspection of Rick Mears' car following his 1998 Indianapolis win. He says a bunch of 75 to 80-year-olds measuring things with yellow Stanley tape measures. One of the Penske guys <laughs> grinning after checking remaining fuel with a stick. <laughs> I think we've come Family a little ways. sport, for sure. Yeah, I think we've come a little ways in technical <laughs> inspection since then. I sure hope yeah, so, anyway. I have, I have Just not seen... Yeah, I haven't seen Kevin Blanche out there with his uh, with, with his tape measure recently. No. <laughs> I think it's a little bit more sophisticated these days. Continuing on with memories of the race itself, the Indianapolis 500, Sid, Cindy Labonte tells us that she was sitting in the fourth turn grandstands waiting for the start of the 1966 Indianapolis 500. At the green flag, there was, of course, that 16-car pileup, and her, her favorite driver, A.J. Foyt, crashed, and she was sitting in the stands crying at 10 years old. I hope that wasn't her favorite memory, but it must be the one that stands out to her the most. Must be that. Well, that would be sad if that's as good as it got. <laughs> Jim Janelle, a couple of years later in 1968, says his greatest memory was seeing the turbines qualify in first and second position. And our friend uh, Steve Jarzambek says, sitting in the old L South stands in the entry to turn three at IMS in 1982, watching the Rick Mears and Gordon Johncock battle go at it in those final laps, everyone on their feet and yelling like crazy. Uh, he also says it's seen Danny Sullivan in 1985 with the spin and win just just to the left of their seating in the Southeast Vista was one of his favorite memories. And one thing we forgot to mention off the top, and I, I will fess up to this, we were trying to gather 100 fan memories for our 100th podcast, and we didn't quite get there. And so that's why we're letting some of these these second places and honorable mentions sneak in so that maybe we start to approach 100 <laughs> memories if, if we didn't get 100 people. You know, that's okay. At this time of year, it's hard to rally people. You know, not everybody's got racing foremost on their minds and it's holidays and uh, all that stuff. But we made a really good go at it on short notice and uh, really appreciated how people uh, rallied on, on um, just a couple days to, to get all of these memories to us. Sophie Hansen writes that she's been attending the Indianapolis 500 since she was three years old. She's now 16. And her favorite memory that stands out among them all is meeting her idol and inspiration, Will Power, uh, the day before the Indianapolis 500 this past year. She says she bawled. It was a mixture of nerves and excitement. She also drove eight hours on the morning of bump day to spend the day meeting drivers and then drove eight hours home that same day. And she got her first garage pass this year, which made it amazing to see the cars up close and meet some of her idols and drivers and even some legends. And the garage pass led to her best Indy 500 ever, Sophie. I remember being 16 years old and being a fan and doing crazy things like that. And you keep it up, girl. You remind me of me so much. <laughs> hey. What? Nice. No, I'm not, I was being nice. 
I was being very nice. It's it's it brings a, a little bit of a of a warm feeling to my heart to know that there are still fans, young fans out there having these moments. It's it's fantastic. I'm going to tell a story of my own later on that's very similar, actually. Not at IMS, but anyway. Uh, Rick Anodize says that uh, seeing AJ Foyt become the first four-time winner was his best memory, and uh, AJ was his favorite driver, and Lee Jackson shares that sentiment. He says his best memory was uh, being a 13-year-old growing up in Houston, Texas. John, you can relate to this one, and seeing AJ win the fourth uh, in 77 as well. He said the whole city went crazy, and he was forever hooked on the sport. I think he might have just missed seeing that one, John. Yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't here yet, but uh, we still hear about it, Then uh, uh, AJ is definitely a, a folk hero down here in Houston. Fast forwarding on from that a few years, in 2007, Gar Blindberry writes in and says he had gotten home from Iraq in 2007 the night before Carb Day, was able to see Dario win his first 500 in the rain. Certainly a, a welcome home treat for Gar that year. Mm-hmm. And our friend um, Chad Smith, who uh, writes, has written for us in the past and also writes at openwheelamerica.com, says for him it was the 75th running of the Indy 500 in 1991 that got him hooked. He says, I was five years old at the time, and Rick Mears was obviously the story for multiple reasons. He became the third, fourth-time winner of the race and did it from pole position in a backup car. After watching his wreck and hearing about his foot injury, it made the story that much more interesting. I remember everybody talking about how it was going to be A.J. Foyt's last run and how he couldn't end on such a sour note after his suspension problems. I also remember the rain delay, which allowed for stories from the drivers and what they were feeling just before strapping into their machines. It was one of the more action-fast Friday sessions as well, with Mir's accident and Mark Dismore's crash into the pits. The race also featured arguably the most talented front row in the history of the race, with Mir's Foyt and Mario. Are you going to contest that, Paul? Uh huh. I don't think you can. <laughs> and the second row was not too shabby either with Bobby Rahal, Michael Andretti, and Alan Sir Jr. Everyone loves the 92 race because of the finish, but overall the 91 month of May was far, far better. It was a perfect recipe to get a young fan hooked on the sport, and it did. Paul, I think this the 91 is one of your top races of all time too, isn't it? It, it is hard to beat that entire month of 91. Um, I, th- I think the only downside of that in some people's minds was that it was an off year for speeds. Uh, it was one of those few years in that 10-year period where they didn't have any speed records. But for, in terms of the quality of that field, the race throughout the entire month throughout, as Chad pointed out, it really was a spectacular month of May, culminating one of the great races that year, for sure. And yet, uh, people more often uh, than any of the other races, I think, that, that we've talked about, with the exception of maybe one, we'll get to that in a minute, um, talked about 1992, as Chad mentioned, toward the end of his piece. And Paul, you want to you wanna take those? Yeah, we hear from our friend Ken Parman here. It's really hard to pick a favorite memory since I have almost 50 years of them going back to 1964, but nearly every one of them involves the closeness that can happen after all the miles of a race. To have cars go the entire distance of the race and end up nearly side by side has always amazed me. So my best Indy car moment would have to be the last seven laps of the 1992 Indy 500 where Al Jr. held off Scott Goodyear. They shared the same real estate for the last several laps of the race, resulting in the closest ever finish of the 500-mile race, of that 500-mile race. Uh, Andre Good writes in and says, My best memory of IndyCar was the last two laps of the 1992 Indy 500. I was hoping Allender Jr. would hold off Scott Goodyear for the victory. That moment got me hooked for life. I still can't believe that Roberto Guerrero spun out on the pace lap, too. <laughs> people forget that one, you know. It was, there are a lot was... of people that would like to forget that one. Yeah. 
Roberto himself, I'm sure. Undoubtedly. Tony Lyon writes in, it's hard to choose. I've been to 41 races. I was at the 1992 race. Allinger Jr. beat Scott Goodyear by inches. On the PA, I heard a tearful little owl say, you just don't know what Indy means. That will always stay with me. People nowadays really don't know what Indy means. That's why I treasure the memories like this one. And finally, John Hendricks writes in, Little Alice in victory lane saying you don't know what Indy means and seeing the four-time winners win their fourth race. Uh, obviously, that would have been in, in 77, 87, and 91 he's referring to. But yeah, the 92 race, a lot of people, and, and this happens a lot, It talk, revisionist history where that final great moment stands out. This was certainly one of those cases where mm-hmm. the the fantastic finish really overshadowed what was a terrible terrible race otherwise uh the weather was cold but those last seven laps it's one of those things where one good moment wipes out a hundred bad ones and and i think a lot of people myself included remember 92 for those good times sure one thing that was a very consistent theme through all of the entries that that we received was uh people finding their first indianapolis 500 to be their best memory a good friend of our site mike silver writes there are so many to choose from but i'll start at the beginning my first indy 500 was 1962 my grandfather got the tickets a guy who worked for my my dad was a usac observer and he drove us to the track race day we parked behind the control tower the race was great i remember being able to see the drivers work the steering wheel as they drove past after the race another thrill i got to meet louis meyer hardly a race day goes by that i don't recall my first race John, do you want to take one? Yeah, we've got Steve Casper, whose first memory is from 1971, watching his first Indy 500 and uh, seeing Gary Bettenhausen stop his car in turn four uh, to jump out and help uh, injured Mike Mosley out of a burning car. Uh, Gary uh, went on to become Steve's favorite driver for the rest of his career, and on that day he realized that uh, the men who raced at the Indy 500 were the bravest on the planet. Steve Ross writes his first Indianapolis 500 was 1987. He had grown up listening to the race on the radio, charting the lap leaders and begging his parents to take him. Dad took him to some practice and qualifying days through his youth, but didn't want to expose a young child to some of the potential craziness <laughs> on race day. I can understand that. I think we Sounds all can. familiar. Yeah. Not snake pit safe. <laughs> The race seemed so large in my imagination as I grew up listening to Paul Page and crew describe it and seeing it in person for the first time was everything I had imagined. The colors and sounds of the entire field as it passed by on the parade and pace laps took my breath away and then the race got underway and it was even better than I had ever imagined. Dad and I got to go to four or 500s together before he passed away and I feel like he's with me every race day. Wow. Mm-hmm. Longtime friend and listener of the site, Alan Stewart, writes, says, As a child, the only Indy car race I ever got a chance to watch on television was the Indianapolis 500. I'd ride my bicycle around the cul-de-sac in our apartment complex, imagining I was Rick Mears on the famed Oval. In 1991, Hewlett-Packard invited my mother to its hospitality area during a practice day at IMS, and she took me along. In addition to IMS, I was just blown away by the speed and the color and the sounds of the sleek Indy car machines. I'm going to snipe this one, guys, because this one's close to my heart. Rob Hartman writes, My first IndyCar race was Elkhart late in 1994 when Jacques Villeneuve scored his first victory, but my favorite IndyCar memory came the following May when I attended my first Indy 500. The entire race was tremendous, but nothing could top those last few laps. I was seated with my family in turn four, where Goodyear passed the pace car near the end of the race, and Jacques assumed the lead and ultimately the race win. What Rob forgets to mention is that Jacques had at one point in the race been two laps down. Also for passing the pace car. He was a two-lap pedal. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Funny Talking stuff. Talking about what goes around comes around. Exactly. Right? 
Nicholas Gessel, the Speedway Gay on Twitter, he says his favorite IndyCar moment was his first race when he was almost 12 years old, the 97 Indianapolis 500. His parents are longtime ticket holders, and he had been begging them for years to go. He says he doesn't really have anything special about the story, just the usual awe that most first-timers get when they enter IMS. He says 97 was near the beginning of the split, and he was too young to really know or pay attention to the politics. But what also made that year interesting was the rain. He remembers sitting in the muddy field for two days, only to see 15 laps, he thinks, of racing. With that much time to drink and that much rain to make it muddy, the turn four area where my parents always part saw a wee bit of the old snake pit return. (laughs) There were a couple of don't look there comments from my mother that year, he says. With the delays, I probably drove my parents nuts with questions since I didn't have anything better to do. I was also probably wet and miserable, but time has a way of glossing over all those facts, and I don't remember them. There was also probably plenty of time for my dad to tell his entertaining stories of previous 500s he attended with his cousins, healthy drinkers all. I do remember (laughs) that I really wanted to skip school the next day to see the whole race, but it wasn't happening. However, it strengthened my case to get to go again the next year, and I lobbied pretty hard for that. For some reason, sitting in the rain for two days, only seeing 50 laps may have been a disappointing experience and not a favorite one but not for me it was my first time at ims and i was in love sam klein says i would say my favorite memory is my first indianapolis 500 i intended in person which was in 2001 i was 13 years old which was the same age my dad was when he went to his first 500 in 1977 i was overwhelmed and how many people were at this event even though i'd seen the huge crowds on television growing up and watching the race on tv I took in the crowds, the pre-race ceremonies, the parade laps, and the start of the race. If I wasn't hooked on the great spectacle already, I definitely was after my first Indy in person. Patrick Bone from Alabama's best memory was the 2006 Indy 500. Uh, he says that he was a new and casual fan, but Sam Hornish's pass for the win set his uh, love for IndyCar on fire, and then it's all been wings and donuts ever since. <laughs> <laughs> The next first Indy 500 memory comes from our friend Shane Rogers, all the way from Australia. We don't hear from Shane as much as we used to. He's been a little busy these days. He's got some some personal projects going on, let's say. He says, you probably can't beat hearing back home again in Indiana for the first time in person. You just can't. 2009, stand B, lower, crappy seat in hindsight. Didn't care. He also reports that his work in the Australian Formula 3 Championship is going well, which is what he's been spending a lot of his time on, and uh, that um, Mount Panorama, the track that's used for uh, the legendary race of the Bathurst 1000, is being repaved, and they're looking forward to breaking lap records there next year. So that's what's going on in Australia, just so that you all know. Uh, one race that was mentioned by several people when uh, talking about the uh, the ones that stood out to them was the 2011 Indianapolis 500, which um, for obvious reasons in retrospect. Uh, now, we have some audio from another friend of ours who has uh, been a, a guest on the podcast before. This is uh, Brian Carocchio from AutoRacing1.com, who tells us why his favorite memory was the 2011 Indianapolis 500. Paul Steph, Brian Carocchio, AutoRacing1.com. Thanks for having me. As far as a favorite moment, i got to go with the 2011 Indianapolis 500. The number of stories that played out over that month, from the struggles of the Andre- of Team Andretti to qualify, uh, underdogs that came to the front like Alex Tagliani and Townsend Bell and Buddy Rice, uh, who, who had successful qualifying efforts. During the race, Danica Patrick's leading it late. Um, she has to come to f- for fuel. It's Bertrand Baguette. When Baguette has to come in for fuel, and Baguette, by the way, was in the catbird seat, had that thing gone caution, you think it's going to be Dario Franchitti, but that's the month where the Ganassis kept running the cars out of fuel. So it's J.R. Hildebrand. 
Hildebrand's looking golden. Then all of a sudden he hits the wall coming out of turn four. And then you're saying to yourself, who's in second place? No idea who's in second place. Dan Weldon streaks past, takes that second victory. Of course, Weldon's a great story, having been sort of left pushed to the side of the road by the Indy car owners, didn't have a full-time ride. It's his second Indy 500 win. He was left off the greatest 33, which came out earlier that month. It's the return of the famous 98 to victory lane. Just, and I'm only scratching the surface here, but so many stories played out during that month, I thought, that to me just made my favorite memory. Thanks. Thanks very much to Brian for that contribution. Uh, greatly appreciated as always. Always great to hear from Brian. He's got uh, some great insights and some great stuff. Paul, you want to carry on with memories of 2011? Absolutely. Tim Williams writes in, he says, mine has to be Weldon winning the 500 for Brian Herta's team. I grew up a huge Herta fan, and to see Weldon deliver that win in the fashion that it happened, I would have never forgotten it, even without the tragedy later that year. And our next entry is from Aaron Ryan, who I had the pleasure of meeting at the uh, the the tweet up in Indianapolis this year, this May. And uh, Aaron is is a very passionate fan, and uh, she shares a very very personal story with us with us, which I found quite touching. She says, as a relative newbie to IndyCar fandom, but a 15-year attendee of Indy 500s, my favorite memory by far is the 2011 Indianapolis 500. Obviously, we all know the drama that was the 2011 race. We sit in the middle of the North short shoot and got to see firsthand how J.R. Hildebrand lost the race as a rookie and Dan Weldon went flying past to secure his second win. Tragically, that day became even more special when we lost Dan. I sadly watched it live and called my family after the crash to alert them that something was amiss. So the reason 2000 was my favorite isn't necessarily for a joyous reason, but more for how racing, specifically the magic that is the 500, can take you to a place of joy where you can escape, briefly, reality. My boyfriend was in the second of an 11-month deployment to Afghanistan. The national anthem, as always, got to me, along with the playing of taps. The day of the race is one of my favorite days of the year, and he knows this. I couldn't get a hold of him for most of the day, which was unusual, but not terribly concerning. During pre-race festivities, I finally heard from him. Something was wrong. He was okay, but he couldn't give me details at the time. As we had gone through a previous deployment, I had learned not to stress over things I can't control. I switched my attention to one of the best and most entertaining 500s at the time. I was able to let go of the worry and the stress of the deployment. As the race ended, the worries came flooding back. Unfortunately, that day was a day of sadness when three of his fellow soldiers were killed, including a friend's husband. I was forever changed that day when the sorrows of war came into my life personally. Racing has the magic to transport us from reality, both good and bad. It's why I can never get too caught up in the politics or the complaints or whatever the latest gripe is of IndyCar. When it comes down to it, it's just a sport, a wonderful sport, but one just the same. It provides us the joy to watch our heroes drive around a racetrack and makes us forget those challenges that await us as we reach our cars and head home. Just a fantastic memory from Aaron. Thank you so much, Aaron, for sharing that with us. Uh, Very, very touching. Amazing to hear how many people were touched as well by the life of Dan Weldon. We heard so much about him in the memories that people shared with us. Glenn Walk pointed out not not the 2011 500, but the 2005 Indy 500 as his favorite memory, being Dan's first win. Plus, he did it by starting 16th on the grid. After that, it really boosted him, he says, and st- he started winning a lot of great races afterward. Even his uh, brother from another mother, TK, started on the pole that year. Patrick Nelson writes in and says... 
uh, also talking about Dan Weldon, says, I found myself sitting next to Dan Weldon at the Sonoma race in 2011. We were in the Andretti Autosport hospitality area. It was my son's first race. I called him over to meet that year's Indianapolis 500 winner. A super special day for me and my son. And uh, before we leave the topic of the Indianapolis 500 too far, uh, Paul, did you have something you wanted to quickly mention? I did. Just as we we were recording this, I got an email from uh, from my dad that came in and talking about his favorite memories. He says his favorite memories were the finishes of the 2002, 5, 6, 11, and 13 uh, Indianapolis 500s. He says the winners in those races weren't known until the last lap or almost the very last lap of the race. And these are the races that I enjoy the most. Considering that your dad has been attending since, what, 1954? Yeah. Missed yeah. only one year and all that. That's a pretty, uh, pretty high praise for the recent era, I would say. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I would have I would have guessed he would have gone back a little further than that. So I'm, I'm surprised to hear that all of his are in the last, what, 11 years. So what I'm hearing from you is that you need to get chopping on those Indy 500 journals so we can get to the good ones. We will have one up and posted in the, uh, let's call it the near future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be vague. I see how it is. That's fine. Uh, another thing that was a frequent theme through the uh, the emails that we received was people finding um, interactions with drivers to be their most memorable moments. Sandy Lamparello writes, my favorite IndyCar memory came at Baltimore in 2013. I was chosen to be one of the IndyCar Nation fans in the Victory Circle picture, and I was fortunate to end up standing right next to race winner Simon Pagano. He and his team were staying in the same hotel as me for race weekend, and he told me he remembered seeing me at breakfast and then handed me the trophy and told me to hold it for a picture. Needless to say, with Simon's arm around my shoulders and a Victory trophy in my hands, I had a huge smile on my face. IndyCar fan Troy Lance writes that he received a two-seater ride with Mario and got to also stand in Victory Circle, this time with Scott Dixon at Pocono, and those make for unforgettable memories for him. He sent us a photo as well, which we'll uh, tack on to the posts that we that we include in this um, in this podcast. Kevin Kerner writes, My favorite memory is from the 2013 Houston Grand Prix. I was wearing a Team Cool Green crew shirt I had bought online in the autograph line, and when Dario saw it, he was shocked. We then had a conversation about the old days there in the line for about five minutes, and he signed the shirt, and I got my picture with him. It was an awesome moment that I'll cherish forever. And, of course, we all know what happened at the end of Race 2 at Houston, which uh, would have made that that much more special. Jeff Massengill says, at Indy in 2008, my four-year-old son Kurt was a huge Tony Kanaan fan. Michael Andretti was entering the garage area, and I asked him if Tony was coming out soon. He said he was going to get TK and bring him out on his golf court and would stop by so my son could meet him. About 15 minutes later, Michael and TK pulled up to us. Tony got off the cart, bent down, and shook my son's hand and said, Hi, I'm Tony Kanaan. Being a typical four-year-old, my son said to him, Yeah, I know. I've got your T-shirt on. <laughs> Both Michael and TK burst out laughing. The next one comes from our friend Amy Wodel, who uh, is Open Wheel Mom. I believe uh, she blogs and is on Twitter. She says Pippa took her son Gage into her garage and showed him her car and let him hold the steering wheel. Talk about a driver going above and beyond for a child. And next one is uh, Amy Myers, who I speak with fairly frequently on Twitter. She and I happen to have uh, a uh, common favorite driver, and that is the the crux of this story. She says, I've been an IndyCar fan since I was 10 years old. There are many, many memories from those 25 years, but my favorite memory was one of the times I met Greg Moore. It was the 1997 Mid-Ohio race, and I was in the paddock garage area by his hauler, hoping to see Greg and get his autograph and picture with him. We don't call them haulers, Amy. 
not an IndyCar. They're transporters here. I believe Amy is uh, from North Carolina. We'll forgive her. <laughs> we, we will definitely forgive her because she sent in a great story. After a few minutes, Greg came out of his transporter and started interacting with fans right next to where a show car was located. I was the fourth or fifth person he got to, and after I got his autograph and a picture with him, I thanked him and turned to leave. Then I heard him say, guys, I'll sign stuff for you, but we need to move away from the car. Let's move away from the car. Greg was known for being an easygoing guy, and the comment was said, but the comment was said almost in a flustered tone. Immediately, he went from my favorite race car driving to acting just like one of my guy friends whose toys was being messed with. It made me laugh that day and still does today. John, you want to take the next one? Yes, uh, Carolyn Meyer said that she was fortunate enough to have her name drawn as the grand prize winner uh, of uh, Ryan Hunter Ray's 2012 Yellow Party in Indianapolis, and her prize was lunch with her favorite IndyCar driver. Uh, she quickly settled on James Hinchcliffe, the rowdy Canadian driving the lime green GoDaddy car, and uh, she goes on to say that uh, while attending the uh, 2012 Baltimore Grand Prix, she was invited to the Andretti Hospitality Trailer. Uh, where James and Ryan were both gracious and uh, outrageously funny, which is not hard to imagine. Uh, her best moment, though, was James treating Ryan as uh, their personal waiter, requesting a soda with no ice and getting it, while James' wonderfully sweet mother insisted on pouring wine for her from her own personal stash. And she said that was definitely a moment that she'll never forget and uh, wanted to thank Ryan and James for that again. I uh, was going to make a snarky comment about calling James a rowdy Canadian, but you know what? James is probably about as rowdy as Canadians <laughs> get. So <laughs> I was going to comment on the Canadian wanting no ice in a soda. I don't know why you guys are anti-ice up there. <laughs> I, hey, I don't think he would have called it a soda. We call it pop. 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 Not, not quite with the Western New York accent. Anyway. Uh, another James Hinchcliffe story. This one's a good one, too. This is this comes to us from Daniel Kincaid. He says, back in St. Pete in 2011, of course, remember, this is when James didn't have a ride. That was uh, right before he signed with Newman Haas. He was in the fan village, and James was doing trivia there. He answered it, and then Hinch asked him who his favorite driver was, and he said tag. And Hinch decided that he needed to do the same number of push-ups as the number on the car, that being, of course, 77. But James relented and instead um, got down and they each did seven to make the 77 on the car and then uh, he's been a fan of the mayor ever since believe it or not not all races that are memorable to people are the indianapolis 500 we had uh, quite a few other races that stood out in fans memories one gentleman who's been a frequent guest of the More Front Wing podcast is Tony DeZino, who, of course, is currently uh, doing the Motorsports Talk page on the NBC Sports Network website. And he shares with us his great memory of uh, what we all know as The Pass. Hi, this is Tony DeZino from NBCSports.com. I've been lucky enough to be on the More Front Wing podcast a couple times over the last couple years. Uh, congrats to you guys on your 100th. Um, to me, the moment that really hooked me on IndyCar racing, probably back in 96, that was my first year watching, uh, Alex Zanardi just really, really piqued my interest. You know, he's a really talented guy, hadn't cut it in F1. He had a couple wins, but of course, we have to get to Laguna Seca. We have to get to the pass at the corkscrew, um, tail end of the year. And it was just, you, you didn't really think it was going to stick. It was, it was really surprising that he made the move that, you know, he caught Herta completely by surprise. Uh, to this day, it was, you know, I'd watched a full season of IndyCar racing, but I hadn't truly lived a full season of IndyCar racing until I saw that. I was like, okay, that's it. I'm hooked. And, uh, and that was pretty much it. So 
I know Alex won the two championships after that. We had uh, this year at this year's Indy 500, he got presented with that car uh, that he made the pass in at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway where he never got to race. It was just kind of a surreal moment because it was a trip down memory lane. It was really cool for Alex, who, of course, has gone on to be an inspiration in so many other ways, shapes, and formats uh, with everything in his Paralympics. Just awesome stuff from him. Um, congrats again to you guys, and uh, look forward to future contributions in 2014. I vividly remember the pass as well. Uh, that was uh, from not terribly early within my fandom. It was just one of those moments that uh, it, if you saw it, it stuck in your memory for sure. I, I can vividly remember seeing the pass as it happened live. Uh, I guess we won't get into the legality. Of <laughs> Let's keep it positive, Paul. <laughs> he does just say still at least... There, there's no doubting, legal or not, it's still one of the bravest and most skillful passes I've, I've ever seen. A couple of our readers agreed with you. They, uh, Richard Barana said, Zanardi's pass on her at Lugunaseke, you could practically feel the burning desire to win from inside the cockpit. It was so unexpected, so crazy, practically unnecessary. I was watching the race on my dad's lap and jumped up when it happened in disbelief. He was my hero from that day onward. He's a lot of people's heroes, my friend. Uh, our good friend here, Robert Zagarak, tells us that uh, he, he has another Alex Zanardi story. He says Alex Zanardi returning to Lausitzring in 2002 to complete the 13 laps that he didn't finish after his horrible crash where he lost his legs stands out as his, um, I, I'm going to say probably not favorite memory, but uh, most standout memory of in IndyCar which uh, definitely understandable, I'm sure it is for many. And uh, a little later on, actually, um, John Orivitz mentions that same memory when uh, when we speak to him about a number of other things as well. Um, Tom Firth says, watching Herta Zanardi and Jario on Eurosport from Long Beach in 1998 with Zanardi claiming victory after passing Herta in the closing laps when coming through the field from the back when Jario finishing second stands out as a memory for him. Gord Smith, my good buddy from Ottawa, says uh, his favorite memory is attending the Michigan race in 1998 and seeing Greg Moore win in person. We had a big Canadian flag with us, he says, and sang Oh Canada at the top of our lungs during the podium ceremony. I can just imagine it. I did the same thing, actually, uh, in, it, not really, but in a sort of roundabout way when Dario won the championship in 2009 before I started, you know, having to be all professional and stuff. I had a Canadian flag with me and I had my little moment with Dario. That, that would be up there on my list. It's not going to be my top memory, but it would Wait, be. Are you telling me that's not Media Center approved? No, I don't think that one would, would get me uh, approved for credentials in the future. If they, ah. if they knew that I was doing that with a credential <laughs> around my neck, which I wasn't. I wasn't. That was the last one I went to where I didn't have one, actually. Uh, good wow. times. Yeah. yeah. Following up on Gord's memory of, of Michigan, Stephen Kilsdonk writes in and says, Lots of great races, of which the 2002 race at Michigan stands out. It says, A fantastically competitive race and an incredible season of IndyCar racing. John, you want to take one? Yeah, we've got Spike Rogan, who uh, his favorite memory is the green flag dropping at Pocono this year. Uh, after years of being told it will never happen, the day a local source tipped him off that uh, Pocono would need a control center for public safety on the July 4th weekend, he knew it was coming. But uh, he says that nothing was sweeter than standing over Victory Lane along with Jeff Gordon watching the green flag fly. Very cool. And our friend Patrick Steffen, who most folks will know as, the, uh, as one of the writers from Trackside Online, chimes in. 
Um, he says, the first moment that hooked me on IndyCar was 1996 at Walt Disney World. I remember watching that on TV and thinking, wow, they really are going to do this. I'd been watching IndyCar for years, but honestly, I was much more of a dirt track fan, particularly of the world of outlaws. I had followed the split via national speed sport news, but that first race for the IRL drew me in and got me paying attention to open wheel racing of a different kind. Of course, a lot of that was Tony Stewart. I knew him from USAC, so seeing him on the IRL gave me someone to follow. And it just seemed like an underdog story, and it seemed fun to me at the time. Maybe it was all the politics that actually garnered my attention. But the idea of Indy cars on more ovals, that was very enticing. They got me motivated to attend my first Indy 500 that year, and I saw Buddy Lazier win from turn four after spending the night sleeping in the car in the rain over at the railroad parking. Seeing Indy for the first time with all those people there, that was special. And oddly enough, that was also the first race at a paved track I'd ever saw in person. I'd been to probably 50 dirt tracks and had done some racing on a few of them, but I was in my mid-twenties before I went to a paved racetrack. And that is what was the start of my IndyCar story. By 1999, I was attending multiple races a year, and then by 2001, I had a hard card and was going to nearly all of the races. Had a nice five-year run without missing a single event, including the overseas ones through the mid-2000s. It's been a heck of a ride, and I'm looking forward to even more fun in the future. And we certainly appreciate all the contributions Patrick has, has given to the IndyCar community. Another one here from David Bird, who's the son of Jonathan Bird, a very long-time long time sponsor of IndyCars at Indianapolis Motor Speedway through the Jonathan Bird's Cafeteria. He says, the Jonathan Bird Cunningham Racing Team and John Paul Jr. winning the Lone Star 500 at Texas Motor Speedway in September of 1998 was his greatest memory. That day, one of the crew guys had left the external battery pack sitting on the under tray at the start of the race. It fell off without causing any damage. After the race, we found out an air hose for one of the wheel guns was split and shouldn't have even been functional. Additionally, after that, he says, a nearly 18-inch long crack in the engine block was discovered. Early in the race, Dave Steele's tire had exploded right in front of John with tire shrapnel ripped off the car's right side mirror, yet did no further damage to the car. Then, with about five laps to go, Davey Hamilton had a tire go down and spun right in front of John on the front straightaway, with John missing the car by mere inches. Apparently, we were supposed to win that day, he says. Some would probably think the highlight was R.E. Leyendijk setting the track record at Indianapolis in Dad's car, but I wasn't at the Speedway that day, so he didn't get to experience in person. Moving on to more recent memories, Diane Oaks says that the St. Pete Grand Prix of 2012 was her favorite memory because she got to see Elio climb the fence and gesture to the Dan Weldon Way street sign. She says she has that picture on her bulletin board, and that was a standout memory for many people, no doubt. Our friend Steve Winnich from OpenWheelWorld.net and my fellow Canuck has a Canadian story to share. He says he's fortunate, he's been fortunate enough to be present for the first wins of many fellow Canadians, Scott Goodyear, Jacques Villeneuve, Greg Moore, Patrick Carpentier, Alex Tagliani, and James Hinchcliffe. The only maiden Canadian victory he's missed in the last two plus decades as a fan was Paul Tracy's at Long Beach. However, Tracy's win at Toronto in 1993 is far and away his most vivid IndyCar memory. The stands in Thunder Alley shaking like they were going to fall down those last five laps as the crowd stomped, danced, and cheered. The echo of the crowd noise bouncing off the buildings in exhibition place as Paul made his way around on his cool-down lap. The throng of people running to Victory Circle to cheer some more. It still feels like yesterday. And when we received 
made that entry, I actually wrote back to Steve and said, thank you for submitting that one so that I could take it out of the list of things that I had to put in my <laughs> consideration, because that's right up there, too. That was a fantastic, fantastic day. John, do you want to take one? Yeah, I'll take uh, one from Kenneth McCollum here. I think first, though, the, uh, the, the moral of that story is if you're a Canadian driver coming up into IndyCar, you need to make sure Steve's at your race. <laughs> uh, but, uh, moving on to uh, Kenneth McCollum's favorite memory. Uh, it was the final race at Homestead Miami Speedway uh, three years ago. Uh, in the final 30 laps with Danica going wheel-to-wheel with Tony Kanaan in a battle for second place. Uh, they were inches apart, lap after lap, uh, neither, neither driver lifting. He says, while the crowd wasn't that big, everyone that was there was on their feet. And while Danica may not have developed as a driver since, on that night she showed all the promise in the world. And he says the television just doesn't do justice for what these drivers are able to do. That is the truth. Absolutely. The other part of NBC uh, Motorsports website, uh, Chris Estrada writes in, our good friend Chris writes in and says, I first started to really follow open wheel racing in the summer of 2001 after witnessing an infomercial of all things. It was for the Indy Racing League's upcoming event to nearby Gateway International Raceway in Madison, Illinois, and the centerpiece of the highlight was a reel of Scott Sharp and and Robbie McGee's battle for victory at Texas Motor Speedway in June of 2000, a battle Sharp had won by 59 thousandths of a second. At 15 years old, I was already a big NASCAR fan, but I'd never seen open-wheel cars duke it out like that on the ovals before. He continues on to say, My thought was simple at the time. It's like NASCAR, only faster. But that appealed to me. I was unable to get my father to buy tickets for the Gateway Indy 250, but I began keeping tabs on the IRL. My racing horizons had been expanded. It's easy to look back on the early days of the IRL and smirk. I know, says Eric. But it had an impact on me. To this day, I'm grateful to both Sharp and McGee for bringing me into the world of IndyCar racing. It's been a tremendous experience. I am totally going to call you out for calling Chris Eric Estrada there. Did I really? <laughs> yeah, you totally did. Sorry, yeah. Chris. <laughs> Not only do you have fat fingers, my friend, you also have um, a fat voice. How, how did we put that? <laughs> I'm sure it's not the first time that's happened to Chris. <laughs> Uh, moving on. I could use that face palm. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, of course, we all know that the uh, the thing that attracts many, many people to the sport or did back in the day was uh, the cars and uh, just the appeal of the, the muscle and the uh, the technology, the engineering. And um, our friend John Orivitz, from, uh, who uh, contributes to ESPN.com, sent us this audio submission where he talks about the cars that uh, – that drew him into auto racing in general and to IndyCar racing. Hi guys, this is John Oriovitz. Uh, congratulations on reaching the milestone of 100 podcasts and wishing you the best for the future. Uh, tough question. I, I don't think I can isolate one single moment that got me hooked on IndyCar racing. But I can tell you that the first racing car that really captivated me or captured my attention was the 1975 Ferrari 312T uh, driven by Nicky Lauda. There was a color photo of that car in Road and Track magazine in 1975. I was 10 years old, and, and really, that's that's what drew me in. I, I loved that car. I started drawing race cars, Indy cars, Formula One cars. I started reading about the sport and learning about it, and really, from that time on, I've wanted to be an auto racing journalist, and I've been lucky to do it for more than 20 years now. Um, you know, 
memorable moments they they changed to you over the years when I was a kid it was you know something as simple as getting a new magazine in the mail um, first trips to the Speedway were cool uh, getting autographs from a guy like Rick Mears at Milwaukee um, nowadays just hitting save and send uh, with a, a story that I know is good is 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 gonna bring me a lot of joy uh, or going out to dinner with my friends some of the friends I've made along the way Robin Miller Gordon Kirby just telling stories about the good old days. Uh, that's where the magic is these days. But there are a couple memories from my career that I'll share uh, that were really emotional in a positive way. The first was when Alex Zanardi completed the 13 laps at Lausitz Ring in 2003 in, a, uh, in an Indy car with hand controls to complete the race in which he'd lost his legs a couple years before. Uh, incredibly emotional. Uh, that man is such an inspiration. Uh, everybody was, was crying, not a dry eye in the house there. The other one was uh, a couple years ago at Indianapolis where I got to see Dario Franchitti drive Jim Clark's car, the Lotus 38, the 1965 winner. Uh, a big day for Dario and, and a real privilege to be there and see and hear that car run. Uh, he only went 85 or 90 miles an hour, but, but the sound of that thing was just magic. Um, a beautiful race car. It, it always has and it always will hopefully make my heart skip a beat faster. Anyway, again, congratulations, guys, and, and keep up the good work. Thanks very much to John for that submission, and uh, th thank you f to you and to all of you, of course, uh, who have congratulated us on our uh, 100th podcast. And uh, I, I'm enjoying you using it as an uh, opportunity to highlight the fans and, and everything that, uh, that people appreciate about IndyCar racing, because I think that's a really cool thing. Um, moving on, we can, we're going to spend a moment actually talking about the international fans, the people who uh, may not ha always have the opportunity to get over stateside and see IndyCar live, or the ones that do and uh, have found that to be uh, their most memorable time with IndyCar. Um, Paul, did you want to start? Yeah, Carol from the United Kingdom says, The race at Texas Motor Speedway at silly o'clock UK time, and I set my alarm to get up for it as all as always for the night races. I remember that race particularly for JR's drive through the field to fifth, but it was a great race overall in the first oval with the reduced downforce package. I know some people hate getting up in the middle of the night, but I always think that when you get a result that makes you happy, it's magical. Honorable mention to Hinch's first win at St. Pete, which was extra special for me as it happened three days before my birthday and was an awesome birth early birthday present. John, you want to take the next one? Yeah, the next one comes from George O'Donnell. Uh, his best memory comes from attending his first IndyCar races, which were actually in Detroit this year, uh, traveling from the U.K. to get there. He said it was phenomenal to finally be with the IndyCar family, given his uh, their long-distance relationship, and to share in the friendship and generosity of the fellow fans, IndyCar staff, team members, and drivers. Uh, George said it's a weekend he'll never forget, and uh, he still continues to tell everyone about it at home, even though it's now months ago. Uh, this will be a name that will be familiar to many. Wellington Costa, our friend from Brazil, who is an avid follower of IndyCar racing and has been for some time. He says what struck him was in 2011 when he attended the circuit in Sao Paulo for the first time uh, at 8 a.m. on Saturday when the first car, which he remembers was Will Power, went down the start-finish straight. Uh, he says a tear fell down his face at the thrill to see his very first IndyCar series race. It was exciting meeting personally all the drivers and some team principals as well. Patrick Watton from the UK, who I think, and I was just trying to confirm, Patrick may have been on the very first. I think you might be right. 
Planet IRL podcast way, way, way right. back in the day. He may actually have been on before me. <laughs> 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 Patrick writes in and says, discovering cart IndyCar, boy, there you go back, cart IndyCar on Eurosport in 2000, finally seeing what the fuss was all about. Wow, it was amazing. Why didn't more people watch? He says going to Rockingham in 2001 and 2002, being blown away by the speed, the noise, the smell of the methanol. And he points out he still gets the flashbacks from the smell of that. Uh, and the paddock was so accessible. Then there was the IndyCar social media revolution, the fantastic title fights. <laughs> exactly, Pat. Who does need double points? Uh, the lasting respect among competitors, even when they disagree, and maybe my favorite memory was when TK finally won the 500. He says, the IndyCar series is now as amazing as Kart was in 2000. The sport has suffered so many bumps in the meantime, but is now back, and back with a vengeance. Now, we are going to now get into the part about the uh, the very personal stories that people have shared with us about their time, uh, either with family or with friends, the things that have impacted them and created for them their great moments in IndyCar racing. Let's start with our friend uh, Cla- Crash Gladys, who is uh, very due to add to her family uh, in the in the very new fu- near future, where we're looking forward to getting that news. Um, Crash has uh, been very kind to share with us some uh, some very personal memories about her time as a young girl at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Hey, everybody at More Front Wing. This is Crash Gladys from Speed Freaks. First of all, got to say congratulations on your 100th podcast. Are you kidding me? That is awesome. I know the radio world and how tough it is, so kudos to you guys. That's absolutely incredible. And I don't know, let's if we're talking about the greatest moment or memory of what got you hooked on IndyCar racing, come on, I'm a girl that grew up in Indianapolis. How can you not get hooked on the Indy 500, arguably the world's greatest race? So it's got to be something Indy 500 related for me. I can't really specify one particular moment my father passed away when I was four years old but he was one of the doctors in the infield care center one of the emergency docs at the speedway and I gotta say I've got vague memories of running around that Dagon garage area and even in the hospital why I was in the hospital I have no idea just checking up on dad in my little checkered black and white dress so something in there my dad got me hooked on IndyCar racing he was so passionate for it I got hooked on it because of him God rest his soul. I still am a huge fan, thanks to him. And, you know, the parties that he and my mom would have with some of the drivers afterwards, again, I don't really remember them. I have vague memories. But then it's it's my stepdad and how he stepped in, and we went to many races in the 80s, and I remember drunk fans next to me throwing a can on the track and turn one, and I would chant with them, can on the track. Just, come on, little random things like that. Love IndyCar racing. Love the Indy 500. Love the fact that you guys are in your 100th podcast. That rocks. Keep doing what you do for IndyCar racing and for motorsports in general. In my opinion, one of the best sports out there. Thanks, guys. Happy holidays. Keep it going. Thank you so much, Crash, and thank you so much for your very enthusiastic congratulations. <laughs> you're, uh, you're a star, and we'd love to have you back on the podcast in the near future. It's been way, way, way too long. How long when was it, Paul, that she was last on? Uh, October-ish of... 2009 oh that's so it's far, been four plus yeah. years that's that's yeah. a little bit too long but i know she's going to be pretty busy in the next few months so maybe we won't hit her up right away but uh, we'll give her a little time to recover yeah Boy, sometime fairly soon We'd she like does have like. a big personality though doesn't she, she? sure does yeah yeah john do you want to take our next one 
Yes, uh, next memory comes from Pete Garrett. Uh, he says the moment that he remembers best is from Cleveland in 1993. He was a race event volunteer, and him and another uh, were strolling through the paddock early that Saturday morning before the gates opened and uh, found himself standing a few inches behind an Indy car. He doesn't remember whose, uh, while about six crew members were working on it. They all looked at him, looked at each other, and then fired up the engine. Uh, he said he'd never experienced methanol fumes before, but right then he knew what they were. Uh, his <laughs> eyes were pouring <laughs> tears like a waterfall, and the entire crew were busting out laughing at him. Uh, he said he's never stood at the back of an Indy car since. <laughs> Our next one comes from... Uh, let me I'm, let me get a help with this name here. Uh, Jacob Black, I believe is his name. Uh, he says, my favorite IndyCar memory was the day I realized that the site I got my stats from was run by a complete hottie. <laughs> uh, it's a cool thing to realize that someone that shares your passion and ignites your passion at the same time. Mine was motorsport. Now it's motorsport. Plus two very special girls. How did this get past the spam filter? <laughs> <laughs> Let's fill this uh, the story in a little bit. So Jacob Black uh, was working at Speed TV Australia uh, several years ago, and he was using more front wing to uh, to fill out his stat sheets on his stories, his IndyCar stories. And uh, he occasionally contacted me to say, hey, I like your work. And uh, then we started talking to each other a little bit more and a little bit more. And then we met in person in New Zealand in 2011 and uh, this past November 1st he became my husband so uh, this website is the reason that I am married today so I think that that's a pretty cool thing that's a good thing I came up with that idea for the uh, event summary isn't it yeah I guess so (laughs) it wasn't that my idea I I guess so we've heard the first compliment that that Steph has given Paul that that is as close of a compliment as I have ever (laughs) That, that's good enough. <laughs> I will take it. And I also have to say thank you to Jacob for mentioning this one so that I could take that one out of my running for my top memory as well, because now I don't have to use that one to. No, he's covered that, so I don't need to do that one. Uh, Paul, actually, you should take this next one because this one, this is one that you're the closest to, I think. It is. This one's actually very close to my my heart as well. This goes back to uh, the early days when I was on track form much more than I am now. Uh, a good friend of ours, Glenn Harm, says he his favorite his favorite memories were meeting and entertaining so many young and old IndyCar fans. Um, Glenn Harm, by the way, I should point out, Glenn, as uh, along with. Uh, with Tom Hamilton were the proprietors, if you will, of the old Campin' Brew that used to be at the Coke lot every year. And Glenn says, meeting and entertaining young and old IndyCar fans, camping out, talking racing, drinking beer, eating great food, and raising a total of $36,605 wow. for Brian's Wish, which is an, an ALS awareness charity, which has uh, unfortunately hit the IndyCar community uh, several times in the past. He says the best part of it all, though, was making the lifelong friends that he's that he's gotten over the years. Fantastic work. I think it was 10 years that uh, that they ran the Camp and Brew, wasn't they it? Did. They did. And they I think... shut it down in 2011 after the 2011 race, which is such a shame because it, yeah. was, it was the social hub, the place to be, but uh, we're all finding our own again now. 
And then Bill Barrett sends in an interesting one. He says, Edmonton and the Team Canada Motorhome turn left. And he says that Steph is to explain this. And I, I'm going to thank, uh, this is my buddy Goldpan. I'm going to thank Goldpan for submitting this one because I didn't have to put this one in the running either. <laughs> this is such a great story. My, You guys, um, I think we've spoken to my buddy Mikey from Edmonton on the podcast a couple times now. Mike Cockrell, very, very, very active and passionate IndyCar fan. And um, in the years when the Edmonton IndyCar race ran. He used to park his motorhome in the parking lot next. Uh, it was uh, right outside the track, and um, he was just the most welcoming. He's he's the most friendly, welcoming guy. He wanted everybody to become an IndyCar fan, and if you were going to be around, and he even sort of halfway knew who you were, he'd say, "Oh, come on by the motorhome, come have a beer, come meet some people," and. Um, he was actually the one who convinced me to go to my first away from Toronto IndyCar race in Edmonton in 2009. And uh, I, from the from the moment I landed at his motorhome, he treated me like family. And uh, the same with everybody else there. And I made so many great friends there. A lot of them I still am in touch with to this day. Something like the Camp and Brew, only more beer, less um philanthropy <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of beer at camp and beer let's not mistake <laughs> beer. but the turn left part of the story is that the after the race um you know most of the fans have gone home and there's us bunch of idiots still sitting there and drinking a few brews uh just because you know none of us were flying out till monday and we were all socializing having a good time and we're there long enough that the transporters all start pulling out of the lot um and they were all pulling, turning right to get out to the main road to go to the highway. And we're all, all of us idiots standing at the motorhome saying, trying to get them to turn in front of us so that we could get them to honk at us and everything as they're going by. And so we're all there standing and screaming at the top of our lungs, turn left, turn left, turn left. I don't know. Maybe you had to be there, but it was awesome. It was, it was one of those just great, you know, camaraderie moments that you find in this sport that I've never found anywhere else. So, moving on to other people's memories, sorry, uh, Ben Beckett writes that he went to Free Friday with his mom, dad, wife, and 11-month-old daughter. It was my daughter's first time at a race weekend, and her face lit up every time the cars came by us. It was fantastic to share a passion with her. I can, I can relate to that very much. Um, I first took Maddie to a race my, when she was five months old. That was the 2011 Indy 500, actually. She got to see Dan Weldon cross the finish line, which is something that's pretty special to me. Um, but the one that I remember her having that moment at where she was all excited watching the cars go by was when I took her to, uh, Long Beach. It would have been 2012. She loved it. Every time a car went by, she was clapping, saying again, again, again. <laughs> uh, Paul, what's your favorite memory of taking Jack to the track? Well, Jackson's only been to uh, the big car track, I guess, once, and but he got to meet Will Power. Ugh. And Will Power has – I don't know what it is about Will Power, uh, but Jackson has just always been a huge, huge Will Power fan. And there's a, a phenomenal picture that I got emailed to me uh, by one of the great IndyCar photographers, Mike Levitt, who runs uh, – LAT photography and he Mike just happened to catch this moment where Jackson meets willpower and the look on Jackson's face is oh. it's priceless I mean it's like he's meeting God himself <laughs> it's just this look of awe on his face and you can tell Jackson is just 
completely awestruck by seeing willpower right there and, and meeting him and talking to him and it, it was a, a a moment to be treasured for sure that's fantastic john have your kids been to the track yet yes actually brody got to uh my four-year-old got to come out to the first race of the houston doubleheader and uh uh, he was was really excited. He's used to going to the short tracks, uh, local short track here in Houston, and being able to see the whole race. So uh, he was a little confused at first uh, <laughs> where the cars were going, but uh, uh, he, he really really had a good time. Fantastic. Um, of the personal memories, before we start to get to our own, I've saved the best for last year. Well, best is probably not the right word to use, but uh, the one that we're all that many of us are going to be able to relate to the most closely. And this is from our good friend, Andy Banfield, who is curling racer on Twitter. Um, Andy is just a sweetheart. And he remembers, he says, um, too many on-track memories to think of in 30 plus years of going to races. So I'll go with a personal one. A great memory I have is attendance at the first winter indie tweet up. Not only did I get to meet Steph and Paul in person and become friends with them, but I also got to meet so many folks that we could share our devotion to IndyCar racing with. Living in Pittsburgh, there's not much of an open wheel following, and the tweet up let me know that there were people just as crazy about the sport I've loved since I was a toddler. One thing that struck me about that weekend, and he says, by the way, thanks, Monica and Elizabeth, was Bash coming in from San Francisco, and he thought Pittsburgh was far. That's when I first met Bash, too, actually, was at the Winter Indy tweet up. Meeting Pippa Man, back when she was just a little Firestone Indy Lights driver. (laughs) Aww. That was awesome. Pippa came out to the the karting event there and uh not everybody even knew who she was yet it was it was very cool of her to do that and she continues to be awesome with fans to this day which, which was is... her first time on the more on the planet irl.com that's true well. it was yeah we have pictures of that us sitting there in our dorky little karting fire suits <laughs> talking to our professional driver that was awesome um and uh, the romance and eventual marriage that was kindled there. And that's, of course, uh, John and Elizabeth, our, our uh, friends as well. And the uh, the legendary tour of the IMS Museum basement. I still feel like I still feel like I didn't appreciate that as much as I could have. I wish that I could do that now as opposed to then because I would be so much more well equipped. Um, anyway, Andy says, IndyCar racing is truly about the fans and the people that we meet, and I am thankful for all those I've met and for those I will meet in the future. That's a great IndyCar memory for me and one that keeps on giving. Okay, so now we've uh, we've saved our own for last, which I suppose is only logical. Let's give you Bash's first. Bash was uh, unfortunately not able to join us as we were recording this podcast. Sad face, tear. Um, she had a little holiday function that she had to go to this evening, but uh, Bash shares that her favorite memory as a fan is from 2007, walking into the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on race day for the first time since 1990. It was my first race at any track since the early 90s. My fandom was a casualty of the split, and I wasn't sure how I would respond. It was a relief to feel the same awesome magic as always, the kind that gives you goosebumps. I'll never forget that moment, that race, or that day. John, you're up. Yeah, my memory uh, is, is my first race. Of, uh, in 2003, uh, my uncle John Knox had an extra ticket to the IRL event at Texas Motor Speedway. Uh, he had had uh, a brother of his that normally had the tickets that would normally go to the races with him. Uh, and he couldn't come, so he called me at the last minute to see if I could drive down there. It was about a two-and-a-half-hour drive from where I was living at the time. And uh, so I got a chance to go to that race and ended up seeing a fantastic race. I got to see Al Unser Jr., who was my favorite driver at the time, 
claim his uh, 34th and final IndyCar victory. Uh, he made a last lap pass on uh, Tony Kanaan, and you know, in true IRL fashion, it was a .081 uh, second margin of victory. And uh, after having watched and having just watched races on TV, uh, getting to see the product in person and and really see the speed and the, the awe of the cars was just something that that always stuck with me. And it took me from being a, a casual fan to to a very hardcore fan now. And this is something I'll always treasure. Yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Okay, I, I'm up next. And I'm I'm sighing because I've, I've debated whether to tell this story. But I've kept this story to very, very close to my chest for a long, long time. But if I'm going to be honest about what my very, very favorite IndyCar memory of all time is, then I have to share it. Don't make fun of me. Okay? Now... I don't think it's a big secret that I was a pretty huge Greg Moore fangirl, okay? And I the reason why I don't like to share this story is because it makes it 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 makes me sound like I was a Greg Moore fan because I had a massive crush on him and that's not true. Okay? I had a massive crush on him because he was an awesome race car driver and because I saw him come up through the ranks and because he was so talented and he was so Canadian and he was all those things. But he was cute, okay? So this would have been dorky kind of way. Yeah, well, I like dorks. Look who I married. <laughs> That's a good point. I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah. So this would have been probably about 1998 or so um, in the paddock at the Molson in Toronto, what it was at the time. I would have been uh, 18 or 19, something like that. He would have been 22, 23. Um and so he was sitting there he was sitting i can't remember who was his teammate that year but whoever it was they were both sitting there on the back of, of the transporter you know with their driving suits around their waists kind of hanging down looking all cool like drivers do you know signing autographs and stuff and huge huge throng of people like the i mean this was canada and these were the canadians everybody wanted to have a minute with them so i got i managed to shove my program in there get it signed and get it back and as I was started to walk away I looked I turned around and I had this this bizarre moment of bravery and I turned around and I looked Greg in the eye and I said to him hey Greg anybody ever proposed to you on a race weekend before and he looked me up and down like my gangly 18 year old self wearing my trucker hat and my ponytail and probably a Paul Tracy 1993 winning Molson Indy Toronto t-shirt and he went no. <laughs> and that was it. That was the whole moment. I laughed, he laughed, everybody around me laughed, and it was over. But it was just that one moment of interaction with him that was just, uh, it's, it still stands out to me to this day as my, uh, my favorite IndyCar memory and the one that will stay with me forever. So I guess it's my turn. Yep. All right. Um, well... Man, I still I still have a hard time picking one thing out. It, it would be so easy to, or maybe not even easy to, to think about some of the great on track moments that I've seen. Um, you know, we talked about the '91, the '92 Indianapolis 500s. Um, you know, I could talk about sitting in the heat or the cold or the rain or the wind or every other atmospheric conditions, tornadoes. At You're Indianapolis. cheating. Um, You're cheating. I know I am. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, you know, watching a, an incredible three-wide finish at Chicagoland. But all of those are things that I can go back on YouTube and I can I can see those. And, and those are those are great on-track memories. But like we've read so many of tonight, what I look back on are a lot of the off-track memories, the things that didn't happen between the safer barriers. Um, and, and I think back on experiences I had. In in the four and a half, five years that I have been so blessed to be part of this site, um, I've, I've gotten to do a lot of things I never even dreamed I would. Um, some of the, the great race weekends. Um, St. Pete this year is a weekend that will never be matched. Indianapolis has had great weekends. But when I look back on it, I think the weekend and the experience that will probably always stand out in my mind uh, would be... Steph, the first weekend we actually met would be the 2009. Aww. I know the the 2009 weekend at Homestead, Miami. That was a great weekend. Um, the, it, it was such a it was a, just a different atmosphere. It was blazing hot all weekend, and a lot of people will remember that. Um, but I I went down there and uh, I, I had Matt Archuleta, our good friend Matt Archuleta, Indy 44, and I had shared a room, and we have stories that we still to this day laugh about and there were you know me hopping curves in a rental minivan and uh uh of course the cheesecake debacle with (laughs) and and elizabeth and and reggie and val and and i I can't even remember who else who all else was there but was something that we'll always remember but i what was great about that weekend is that was still at the very beginning and burgeoning races of the social media yeah. Explosion. That was when you were still running around interviewing people in the paddock with your rock band microphone. Hey, hey don't knock the rock band <laughs> microphone. That rock band microphone got me through a lot of podcasts, thank you. <laughs> yeah, until I finally convinced you to get yeah, a proper I, headset, like uh, three years later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it was such a great time for still meeting new people. And yeah. you know, off track, I, I met you and... Uh, Let's see, Monica and Elizabeth I met that weekend. Um, you know, on the racer side, that's when I first met Pippa. That's when I first met Tony Kanan. Uh, first time I was totally starstruck and talked to Rick Mears for, for quite some time. And it was just a, a great blossoming age of, of the IndyCar series with this social media explosion that was going on. And, and it was led at the time by Pat Caporale, mm-hmm. who was the phenomenal PR uh, spokesman for Vision Racing at the time. Um, and it, just looking back on that weekend, uh, it was the second weekend that I had covered for, for Planet IRL at the time. I had done the Chicago Land Race uh, about six weeks prior to that. But that Miami race was really where um, where I think things really took off. And, and it, it was then that I really felt kind of settled in to this role a little bit more. And, and I just always look back on that weekend as as an incredibly special weekend in my racing fandom. Wow. That's so special. I was sure that you were going to spit out like the 91, 8500 or something like that. I didn't think you'd go all sentimental on me. I know. Now I feel Steph is very glad that she gave you that half partial uh, pat on the back. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Well, (laughs) Steph, it just makes me remember your, the little blue Canadian I bag. knew you were going to bring up the little blue bag. I don't know where it went. It's gone. That's how Matt, Matt and I were wandering around the garage. And for some reason, you must have posted something that you would be seeing because you had this little... Yeah, on Twitter. Yeah. 
You must have. And and Matt and I were wandering around, and I remember specifically, if I go back there, I could probably actually remember where you were standing. It was one of the entrances to the garage, kind of one of the pass-throughs, if you will. Yep. Matt and I kind of were walking by, and we kind of stopped, and we said, that kind of looks like Step. No, that's not. Wait. It is her. She's got the little blue Canadian bag. <laughs> my little blue backpack with my little Canadian flag sewn on it. That was it. Yeah, I know. Was- I retired it after that race, actually. So sad. Sad, but but not, because, I mean, sitting, sitting here, look how far we've all come, and look how far so many of the people that we've met over the years have come, and how many of them are, are um, now doing what they love to do um, and, and deeply involved in racing in, in any number of ways. It's just amazing to see the, uh, the changes that have happened over the years. And uh, we're all so very blessed to have been a part of it all. Thank you so much to all of you who are listening, to all of you who submitted for this, to all of you who have played any part in this podcast or in more front wing over the years. If it was not for all of you, There would be no point in us all sitting here doing what we do. So thank you for the opportunities that you have afforded us through your interest in our work and what we do. And I guess we should probably also say thank you to IndyCar because if it wasn't for them and their openness in being willing to open their their media center and their uh, their access to people like us, we wouldn't be able to bring this to you. So uh, so kudos to them as well. And that goes Absolutely. beyond just the, the Amy Conras and the Arnies and, and the folks at IndyCar, but certainly all of the, the wonderful PR people that we're, that we're so blessed to get to work with, whether that's Monica uh, at Barracuda or Kelby Krause at, at Target or Don't Meryl start naming Kane names because we'll never get through them all. Right. There, there's so, so many. many people that we, that we should think that we just can't do it at this time, but everyone has been so gracious to us over the last five years. And the drivers who give us the time of day for some reason. <laughs> Exactly. So it's been amazing. It's been a wild ride. And uh, here's to 100 and here's to 100 more. Thanks to both of you guys uh, for all the work that we've done together. Looking forward to, to carrying it through uh, through very far into the future as, as much as we can. Absolutely. Thank okay. You. Well, on that note, I think we're ready to call it a day, and we promise you we will be back. Uh, I know that we typically take the off-season off, but we've had uh, quite a number of requests for people to actually have us, you know, I don't know, talk about, like, recent racing stuff, like like off-season news. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so we're actually planning to be back um, pretty early in January to to uh, cover some of the news that's, that's happened since then because there's been enough of it, and uh, we might look into making that a sort of more regular thing, because, I mean, we've got a seven-month off-season coming up next year, so we might as well get in the habit of at least checking in <laughs> once a month or something. But the year after that, I think we're racing at every awesome track all over the place. I think That's so. What I keep hearing. Yeah. yeah, and flying all over the place all through That's the winter. Right. That's going to be great. Can I go ahead and book my tickets to, uh, to, to Europe and Brazil and Japan already? I think so, sure. yeah. I heard we were right. going to Italy or something. Awesome. <laughs> we can race at Spa and Monza and, you know. Oh, Monaco, right? Start the wish list. That's a whole other show. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we will be back uh, in the not too distant future. But in the meantime, thank you all for everything. Oh, hey. Oh, gosh. We can't forget to do the blooper reel. Yeah, so Paul tied together um, some <laughs> of the old, some of our, our, our uh, well, moments that make us laugh. Anyway, maybe they'll make you laugh too. He just uh, they pulled together a few uh, little clips from over the years and. Uh, but we, we definitely want to listen to them, so we thought you might, too. Here they are. I got to quit saying, oh, uh, oh. Uh. Yeah, I did that for a long time.
No, what are you doing? You don't say um. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> I thought you were being sentimental. Oh. Now I find out you were being a jackass. <laughs> you want to talk about Brooklyn? I'll talk to you about Brooklyn. Uh huh. <laughs> uh huh. No, don't be so pessimistic. Gently caress the toast. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like you know, wax on, wax off. I would have gone nuts. You're already nuts. Shut up. Don't tell me what to do. Look at you. Look at me. What? Yeah, we got a badass over here. What? Fly on the seat of his pants. Oh, shut up. All right, well, on that hilarious note, <laughs> I guess we're ready to call it a day. John, thank you for everything you've done for More Front Wings so far. We've been very happy to have you, and thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, too. I'm glad we're, we're just getting started. I haven't been here for many of these, but hopefully I'll be here for a lot more. Do you want to put a plug in for your book while we're, before we finish up? Absolutely. You never turn down a, a chance to put a plug in. Uh, uh, Hard Luck Lloyd, my uh, biography of Lloyd Ruby, is, is actually out now. Uh, it's available at uh, racemaker.com or coastal181.com. It's doing pretty well so far, so I encourage everyone to go check it out. We've got a few excerpts of that up on the site, so if you want to have a little bit of a sneak preview before you decide to buy, you can check that out there, but you will decide to buy because it's awesome. Paul, thank you for everything. Sure. For all these these past few years, for all these past podcasts, for all the opportunities that you and I have have uh, joined in together, some amazing uh, legends that we've talked to, and it's all because we had each other. Aww. It's been a fun ride, and we have certainly been blessed. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, that's enough touchy feely crap. Yeah. Let's call it a day. <laughs> Yeah, y'all insult one another or something, so we know everything's all right. Yeah, I know. The, the universe is out of balance. we got to do something. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, guys. And uh, remember, to all of you at home, before we talk to you again, if you need IndyCar news and views, get a grip with more Front Wing.